Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. So David Canadine is Dodge Professor of History at Princeton University, visiting professor at the University of Oxford, and president of the British Academy. I don't think he's got a medal like this, but I I sort of hope not. Um, He's the author of many books, including The Decline and Fall of the British Aristocracy, Class in Britain, Ornamentalism, The Undivided Past, and biographies of G.M. Trevelyan, Andrew Mellon, King George V, and Margaret Thatcher. And his most recent book is Victoria's Century, The United Kingdom, 1800 to 1906. So David is also a trustee of the Wolfson Foundation, the Rothschild Archive, the Gladstone Library, and the Gordon Brown Archive. And I'm going to stop there because it goes on a bit, but you can see he's generally a very good thing, and we're really delighted to welcome here. What I now want to say is about his association with the Royal Academy, because he is a trustee of the Royal Academy Development Trust, and he's a board member of Royal Academy America. So to me personally, he's been a great advisor and a source of wisdom, as you can imagine. The title of the lecture is uh, The Statesman as Artist, and I was just wondering before I came on about just turning it the other way around and getting the artist as statesman and seeing what that would look like. And I immediately thought of my predecessor, Lord Leighton. But that's a slightly sad story because he is the possessor of the shortest hereditary peerage in history. He was raised to the peerage on the 25th of January, I think, 1896, and he died the very next day. So there's not much material there, but there's certainly plenty of material when we come to Churchill. I'm delighted to welcome Sir David Canadine. David. Uh, Well, good evening, uh, everyone, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Thank you so much, Christopher, for that immensely kind and generous uh, introduction. Um, Since I earn my living in part by uh, speaking as well as writing, I have become a connoisseur of introductions to myself, uh, which it must be said is not a severely competed for uh, position. Um, And I have never forgotten the occasion when I was on the road in uh, North America with my biography of Andrew Mellon, um, and I did a turn in Kansas, Kansas City, and there was a rather lovely dinner beforehand, and then the person who was in charge uh, introduced me, and he said, I'd like to introduce David Canadine. He is the author of the greatest biography of Andrew Mellon ever written. And I thought the evening promised well uh, at this point. But then he added, rather spoiling the effect, it is, of course, the only biography of Andrew. <clears throat> so, uh, Christopher, thank you so much for not, as it were, having uh, said that. I want to talk tonight about a very extraordinary figure, extraordinary in many ways. And the further away we get from his life, the more extraordinary I think he becomes, and for many reasons. And, of course, I want in particular to talk about him as an artist and as a painter. But uh, let me, as it were, get us to this subject in in a slightly more elaborate way. Uh, When Roy Jenkins finished his biography of Churchill, the greatest prime minister of the 20th century, having already written a life of Gladstone, the greatest prime minister of the 19th century, he concluded that he thought Churchill was the most remarkable human being ever to have occupied 10 Downing Street. Uh, And think what you may of prime ministers in recent times. I don't think we are in any way obliged to modify that verdict, at least not yet. One of the ways, of course, in which Churchill was utterly extraordinary was that he possessed this amazing hinterland. Uh, He was a soldier, uh, he was an airman, uh, he was a bricklayer, uh, he was a journalist, he was a biographer, uh, he was a historian, um, and he was also uh, a painter. 
Uh, and he managed all that uh, in addition to being a not wholly inconsiderable figure in terms of the public affairs of Britain and the wider world uh, for a large part of the 20th century. He was a man clearly of both prodigious talent uh, and extraordinary uh, energy. Uh, and I want to talk tonight, of course, uh, in particular, uh, about one aspect of that prodigious array of talent and that extraordinary energy. That is to say, uh, Churchill as an artist, uh, Churchill as a painter, and how that fits into this broader life that he lived on so many different levels uh, with extra such extraordinary uh, energy, distinction, and in certain cases, of course, uh, controversy. I'm sure I don't need to remind an audience um, as cultivated and civilized and illustrious as this that Churchill was born in 1874 in Blenheim Palace, which when he was born there was one of the greatest treasure houses of Britain. And Churchill, of course, remained devoted to his ancestral home all his life. And in his later years, he would vividly depict... Do we have pictures? Do we have pictures? Pictures. Any, can anyone help with pictures? They are rather important since I am lecturing, as it were, on pictures. We have pictures. Good. In later years, example here, he would vividly and affectionately depict its ancestral interiors and, of course, its spectacular Vanbrugh exteriors and the capability brown landscape. But that artistic heritage does not seem to have made any lasting impact on young Winston because it was significantly diminished during the mid-1880s, when most of the greatest pictures were dispersed to the National Gallery and to the sale rooms. And that irreparable aesthetic damage was scarcely compensated for when, 20 years later, Churchill's cousin, Sonny, the ninth Duke of Marlborough, commissioned John Singer Sargent to paint his Bravura family portrait, which, of course, adorns Blenheim to this day. The sale of the greatest pictures in the Marlborough collection may help explain why Churchill never seems to have evinced any interest in European old masters or in the great tradition of English portraiture running from Hogarth, Van Dyck to Lawrence and indeed eventually in some ways to Sargent himself. And it's surely significant that, some of, that his most successful paintings of Blenheim interiors or of rooms hung with tapestries celebrating his greatest forebear, the first Duke of Marlborough, rather than with the less distinguished canvases that had survived the aesthetic depredations of the mid-1880s, when, as I've said, the Marlboroughs, who were strapped for cash, had to sell off their best pictures uh, in order to improve their rather parlous financial condition. The disappearance of the greatest Blenheim pictures when he was still a boy may well be one of the reasons why Churchill would later claim that apart from a few drawings rather reluctantly and unhappily undertaken while he was at school and in the army, he had demonstrated no serious awareness of art or appreciation of art at any point during the first 40 years of his life. Such was his recollection, as reported years later by Clementine Churchill and as recorded by Lord Moran. This is what Clemmy wrote. <clears throat> when Winston took up painting in 1915, she claimed, he had never up to that moment been in any picture gallery. He went with me to the National Gallery, and pausing before the first picture, a very ordinary affair, he appeared absorbed in it. For half an hour, he studied its technique minutely. Next day, we visited the gallery again, but this time I took him by the left entrance instead of the right so that I might at least be sure that he would not return to the same picture. Well, that, as it were, is the conventional wisdom about Churchill's belated engagement with what he called paints and palettes and canvases, a wisdom that he himself did much to create when he came to write the essays that would ultimately appear in 1948 uh, in a book as painting as a pastime. But like so much about Churchill, it's actually much more interesting and much more varied than an oversimplified interpretation of things would suggest. And it's about that, really, that I want to talk uh, this evening. Now, of course, it's true that Clementine Churchill's testimony goes a long way to reinforce the view put forward by the historian J.H. Plum that despite Churchill's many and extraordinary range of gifts, there was always about him in his painting, as in so much else, what he called a touch of the Philistine. Churchill's literary culture was largely confined to that of his class and his time. The Bible, Shakespeare, Milton, Scott, Dickens, and a little trollop topped off with Rudyard Kipling. 
His taste in music was restricted to Gilbert and Sullivan, the late Victorian music hall, Viennese operetta, military marches, land of hope and glory, and rule Britannia. He did not turn hungrily to the works of philosophers, economists, or social scientists, and he showed no interest in engaging with Marx or Freud, the giant intellectual figures of his youth and middle age. His models in history writing were not the innovative scholars of his own time, but two men long dead, namely Gibbon and Macaulay. And in addition to showing no interest in European old masters or the great tradition of English portraiture, Churchill never evinced any enthusiasm for abstract or non-representational art as it developed and evolved during his long lifetime in the hands of such innovative masters as Picasso or Chagall. Not surprisingly, then, his first appearance here at the Royal Academy's summer dinners in 1908, 1911 to 13, and 1919 were because of his importance as a government minister, not because he was expected to have anything significant to say about art, uh, which indeed he didn't have. Yet while in some ways it's easy to dismiss him as being culturally uninformed, incurious, and unsophisticated, Churchill was also, as Kenneth Clark once said, a person with a very powerful and original mind. And he was also exceptionally imaginative and remarkably uh, creative, no less, in the words of A.R. Rouse, an artist than a politician. And this was something he owed to his Spencer rather than his Marlborough forebears, and also perhaps to his uh, mother's family, the Jeromes of New York City. For example, his otherwise rather wayward nephew, John Churchill, who was the eldest son of his younger brother, Jack, made a successful career as an artist and a sculptor, and as a painter of murals, portraits, and frescoes. Churchill helped John on his way, employing him in the late 1940s to decorate the summer house at Chartwell with scenes of the Duke of Marlborough's four greatest battles. And John would later decorate a temple at Blenheim Palace for the 10th Duke of Marlborough. In the same way, Churchill's equally wayward cousin, Claire Sheridan, who was the daughter of Lady Randolph Churchill's elder sister, was an accomplished sculptor. It's true that Claire and Winston disagreed violently about politics. She was an ardent supporter of communist Russia and sculpted a bust of Lenin two and a half times life size. She did also complete a memorable bust of Churchill in the 1920s and another in the early 1940s, but neither of them were on quite the same scale. And in later generations, Winston's daughter Sarah would also be an actress uh, and a painter, albeit of sadly unrealized promise. And his granddaughter Edwina Sands is, of course, a renowned sculptor and artist. Churchill's genetic inheritance, therefore, seems to have included a genuinely artistic strain, but it was, of course, and above all, exceptionally pronounced and well-developed in his own case. From an early age, he seems to have been gifted with the heightened perception of the artist to whom no scene, no event, no individual was ever dull or humdrum or commonplace. This is self-evidently true in his use of the English language which he handled in his conversation, his speeches, his journalism, and his books, with a sure touch, the sensuous feel, and the imaginative brilliance of an artist, as he delighted in strong words, rich imagery, polished antitheses, arresting alliterations, glowing phrases, and memorable effects. There was nothing dull or humdrum or commonplace about Churchill's use of words. And although his canvases lack the stately splendor, the heroic grandeur, and the formal magnificence of his greatest set-piece orations. They strikingly resemble his speeches in other ways, often being bright, vivid, highly colored, and brilliantly illuminated creations, full of arresting contrasts between the light and the dark, the sun and the shadows. And when Churchill later came to write about painting, one of his descriptions of the finished product as a long, sustained, interlocking argument characterized by a single unity of conception would apply with equal appropriateness to the composition and the structure of his greatest orations. What is more, Churchill not only possessed a powerful verbal imagination, but he was also endowed with an equally strong visual imagination and visual appreciation. Lord Moran 
who knew an awful lot about Churchill, once said, it's not the whole of the truth, but it was a perceptive insight. Winston sees everything in pictures. Despite his own later insistence to the contrary, the drawing classes he took at Harrow and at Sandhurst do seem to have made a lasting impact on Churchill. And he was fascinated by political cartoons from an early age, especially the work of David Lowe. Even in his first books, published in the late 19th and early 20th century, when he was still a very young man, Churchill possessed an extraordinary capacity to visualize a scene, to evoke landscapes, to describe cities and towns and villages, and to capture in words the din and destruction of battle. He also recognized early on the importance of illustrations in the form of drawings and photographs as an essential accompaniment to the printed text. And he was especially concerned to furnish detailed maps of the many battles he witnessed, participated in, and described. All this may explain Churchill's later interest in moving pictures and in the cinema. During the 1930s, he wrote several screenplays for Alexander Corder and his London film productions. None of them, in fact, ever went into production. He made friends with Charles Chaplin, whom he met in Hollywood and who later visited Churchill at Chartwell, where it soon became clear that Chaplin's political views had more in common with Claire Sheridan's than, it's fair to say, with Churchill's own. In 1935, he wrote an essay comparing the relative merits of silent and talking films, and of course, during the Second World War, uh, weekends at Chequers uh, were often, uh, as it were, uh, embellished and diverted by late-night films being shown, which Churchill always watched, uh, very much engaged and enthralled. Well, here is one early example of Churchill's remarkable capacity to convey a scene and evoke a landscape in a word picture. It's from his early and only novel, uh, Savrola, and it describes the broad panorama that could be glimpsed from the balcony of the presidential palace in the fictional Republic of Lorania. This is what Churchill wrote. The scene which now stretched before her was one of surpassing beauty. The palace stood upon high ground, commanding a wide view of the city and the harbour. The sun was low on the horizon, but the walls of the houses still stood out, glaring white. The red and blue tiled roofs were relieved by frequent gardens and squares, whose green and graceful palms soothed and gratified the eye. Many white-sailed smacks dotted the waters of the Mediterranean Sea, which had already begun to change their blue for the more gorgeous colours of sunset. This was not only vivid and evocative word painting, it also anticipates many of the harbour scenes along the French Riviera and the Mediterranean coast that Churchill would become so fond of depicting during the 1920s and 1930s. Earlier on, he created pictures on the page. Later on, he created pictures on the canvas. So while it's incontrovertibly true that Churchill did indeed not actually take up painting as a pastime until his 40th year. He clearly had quite a lot going for him when he actually got round to doing so. Nevertheless, and as is well known, he took the activity up suddenly, unexpectedly, and therapeutically, and with characteristic relish, but it is fair to say, uncharacteristic diffidence. During the summer of 1915, his spirits were at their lowest ebb in the aftermath of the Dardanelles disaster, for which, fairly or unfairly, he bore the brunt of the political blame as First Lord of the Admiralty. Out of power and very soon out of office, Churchill was haunted by what he termed the black dog of a depression so deep that Clementine feared he would die of grief. Just as a drowning man grabs a lifebelt, so Churchill now turned to painting as a new way to engage his energies, to blot out political failure, to banish the black dog of depression, to revive his spirits and to enable him to enjoy life once again. This is the earliest picture of Churchill painting. That's Clementine standing by his side. At the time, Winston and Clementine had rented Hoe Farm, a small country house in Surrey, where Churchill's brother Jack and his wife Gwendolyn, known as Goonie, often came to stay. And here, indeed, is Churchill's painting of Goonie at Hoe Farm. 
And he was Goonie who first persuaded Churchill to paint, though she herself was a watercolorist, whereas Churchill soon came to prefer oils as being the stronger and more robust medium. Churchill was immediately hooked by the challenges and opportunities of painting. And during these early years, the late uh, 1910s and early 1920s, he experimented with a variety of styles and a variety of subjects and took a variety of advice from expert painters who could help him. One of the first artists to give his advice was his London neighbour, Sir John Lavery, whose wife Hazel was also an artist, which may explain why Churchill painted more portraits at this time than he would later do including this one utterly extraordinary, searing self-portrait from 1915, uh, depicting, I think, the bleak, desolate, melancholy sense of rejection and loneliness that Churchill felt at the time. It's utterly unlike most of the pictures that we associate with Churchill later in his artistic career. When he went off uh, to fight in the First World War to the Western Front in 1916, he took his brushes and his easels with him. And the result uh, were a series of powerful wartime paintings of devastated buildings and the war-tour countryside. Very different were the warm and bright and sunny pictures that he would paint in Cairo in 1921 when he attended a conference there as colonial secretary, and which anticipate the later paintings for which he became best known, uh, the sun-drenched landscapes of the Mediterranean, the Riviera, uh, and, of course, of uh, Morocco. Churchill soon fell in love of all else with the impressionist use of light and colour. He once said on one occasion, light is life. And he established a studio at Chartwell where he would spend many happy hours painting when he wasn't dictating his essays and his books and his journalism or doing his bricklaying. Churchill also at this time in the 1920s sought the advice of Walter Sickert who gave him uh, good guidance on how to prepare canvases and on the handling and laying on of paint. And that was a friendship which lasted until the late 1920s when, however, Sickert painted a portrait of Churchill which Clementine thought made him look like a bookie after which the friendship rather uh, expired. Across more than four decades... Churchill would eventually complete somewhere in the order of 500 canvases. And more are coming to light all the time, so the number is still actually going up. An astonishing output, given the many other calls on his time, his energy, and his imagination. In terms of his non-political activities, his painting would soon come to rank second only to his writing. But there were two significant differences. Churchill wrote for serious public purposes to celebrate his family, to vindicate his own record. As he once said, history will not be kind to Neville Chamberlain. I know because I'm going to write it. <laughs> and of course, and above all, perhaps, to make the substantial sums of money needed to finance his lavish style of life. My tastes are very simple, he once observed. I'm always easily pleased with the best. By contrast, he seems to have painted entirely for therapy and for enjoyment. It helped to keep the black dog at bay. It was a hobby and a relaxation rather than an occupation. And he never intended to sell his canvases for serious money, though he did hope, if she ever needed more money, that Clementine might do so after his death, which indeed she did. But in addition, and unlike his writing, and indeed unlike virtually everything else he did, painting was the only activity which Churchill carried on when awake even when surrounded by a large entourage in his later days of fame, in concentrated and complete silence. Churchill spent almost all of every day talking, either at the lunch table or in terms of dictating the books, the journalism, the articles. The only time when he was awake, when he was actually silent, was not when he was listening to other people, which he never had much time for, but rather when he was painting. When he painted, it absorbed him utterly, taking his mind off everything else, and indeed off everybody else too. By the early 1920s, Churchill had become sufficiently experienced to set down his thoughts on painting in several articles, which initially appeared in the Strand magazine. Along with Savrola, they are among the most self-revealing words he ever wrote. They were, he explained to Clementine, very light and amusing, without in any way offending the professional painters. 
Clementine wrote back to say that they would offend the professional painters and urged him not to do it. He simply disregarded her advice. For someone with such a towering and self-centered ego, and this is one of the reasons why this book, these articles are so interesting, Churchill wrote with uncharacteristic humility and self-deprecating candor about his own limited artistic talents and his modest painterly efforts as a self-confessed weekend holiday amateur. We must, he insisted, not be ambitious. We cannot aspire to masterpieces. We may content ourselves with a joyride in a paint box. And for this, he concluded, audacity is the only ticket. He wrote in favourable terms of John Ruskin and shared his delight in bright, vivid colours. I rejoice, he wrote there, with the brilliant ones and genuinely feel sorry for the poor browns because they're so drab and so dull. He wrote appreciatively of Turner and the French Impressionists, especially their fascination with the effect of light on landscape. And he was also, in fact, a great admirer of the paintings of Matisse. As befitted a former soldier, he envisaged his painterly encounters with the initially intimidatingly empty canvases of battles of, as battles of will, which he was determined to win by an overwhelming display of forceful colors and colorful force. Painting, he also argued in these pieces, gave a heightened sense of nature, cultivated the memory, absorbed the mind without fatiguing the body, provided a great incentive to travel, and furnished a hobby and a distraction, which with any luck would be a lifelong comfort and companion, a point to which I shall return. By the mid-1920s, Churchill had largely given up painting and had settled on landscapes and vistas, still lives and interior and exterior scenes, as his preferred subjects. As these canvases accumulated, he became increasingly widely known as a painter, which meant that by the interwar years, he now attended the dinners of the Royal Academy, not only as a major politician, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Baldwin's Conservative government of 1924 to 29, but also as a recognized and reputable amateur artist. In 1927, in replying to the toast to His Majesty's government, Churchill spoke on art and politics, insisting that artists were among the most fortunate mortals on the globe because their work was also their joy. The paintings on display this year, Churchill went on, were the result of hours of pleasure, hours of intense creative enjoyment, resulting in what he revealingly described as bottled sunshine, captured inspiration, perennial delight. In comparing art and politics, he continued, flair and judgment were equally necessary in both activities. And there were three dominant elements of each profession, that were common to both, namely color, proportion, and design. Churchill had no doubt which of these three was the most important and which he himself preferred. Color ranks far above proportion and design, both in painting and in politics. I admire it very much indeed in painting, he went on, and to general amusement, he added, I am not entirely averse to it in politics either though he did also concede that in art, no less than in politics, colour needed disciplining by proportion and by design. During the 1930s, Churchill was out of office for most of the decade. He spent much of his time writing his multi-volume biography of the first Duke of Marlborough, and painting was his preferred form of recreation and relaxation. Many of his best pictures of English country houses date from this time, uh, including, uh, that's Wilton Park. Uh, this uh, is Cranbourne Manor in Dorset. Also including many of the Blenheim interiors with which I began, and also many paintings of Chartwell. There is Chartwell uh, in winter. He also spent a lot of time staying in the luxurious houses, the luxurious French houses of many of his rich friends, such as Lord Rothermere and Maxine Elliot and the Duke of Westminster. And it was on those visits to France that he befriended the painter Paul Mays. And here is an account by Consuelo Balzan, previously the Duchess of Marlborough, who divorced the Duke of Marlborough and married a rich Frenchman. Here is Consuelo's account of Churchill as a house guest, staying at her house, that's her house, uh, during the 1930s. 
Winston used to spend his mornings dictating to his secretary and his afternoons painting either in our garden or some other site that pleased him. His departure on these expeditions was invariably accompanied by a general upheaval of the household. Most households where Churchill stayed had to go through considerable phases of upheaval while he was there because he was a very demanding house guest. The painting paraphernalia with its easel, parasol and stool had to be assembled. The brushes freshly cleaned to be found. The canvas chosen, the right hat sorted out, the cigar box replenished. At last, driven by our chauffeur, accompanied by a detective the British government insisted upon providing, he would depart with a genial wave and rubicund smile we have learned to associate with his robust optimism. On his return, he would amuse us by repeating the comments of those self-sufficient critics who congregate round easels. An old Frenchman one day told him, with a few more lessons, you might become quite good. It was also during the 1930s that Churchill fell in love with the bright colours and warm sunshine of the French Riviera. And during the winter of 1935 to 1936, he also discovered uh, the delights and the painterly potential uh, of Marrakesh. Although out of power, Churchill attended Royal Academy dinners regularly during his wilderness years, and he spoke on several occasions. In 1932, his subject was political painters, for, as he modestly explained, I would not dream of lecturing the Royal Academicians on your art. Instead, in a rather fanciful speech, he chose to describe the artistry exhibited by members of the national government, from whose ranks, of course, he had been excluded. In particular, he spoke of Stanley Baldwin, whose carefully cultivated rustic self-image with his pipe and his pigs was, Churchill thought, rather lacking in colour and precise definition. Appropriate paintings, as it were, depicting Baldwin, would Churchill suggested include pigs in clover and broccoli in autumn. Baldwin's response to this suggestion is unrecorded. Six years later, Churchill spoke again, this time on tradition and novelty in art. The functions of such an institution as the Royal Academy, Churchill insisted, is to hold a middle course between tradition and innovation. He was always very careful about that, especially at a time when that was such a controversial subject uh, here in the Academy. Without tradition, art is a flock of sheep without a shepherd. Without innovation, it is a corpse. But innovation had its limits. It is not the function of the Royal Academy to run wildly after novelty. Now more than ever, Churchill believed, we're in 1938 at this point, it was the purpose of the Academy to give strong, precious and enduring aid to British painting and sculpture. In this hard material age of brutal force, he concluded, speaking only a few weeks after Hitler had annexed Austria, we ought indeed to cherish the arts. Ill fares the race which fails to salute the arts with the reverence and delight which are their due. And the only major speech that Churchill made on art not to the Royal Academy was one that he had delivered a year earlier at the opening of an exhibition called Sea Power in Art. And the exhibition opened just after Hitler had authorised the destruction of large amounts of contemporary art in Germany on the grounds that he thought it degenerate art. And one of the things that Churchill came to believe by the 1930s, even though he was no great fan of avant-garde art, was nevertheless that freedom of artistic expression was a vital attribute of any society which plausibly came, claimed to call itself uh, democratic or liberal uh, or indeed free. And part of the grounds of his hostility to Nazi Germany was that it destroyed art. And for Churchill, that was, for many reasons, uh, aesthetic and political, uh, unforgivable. Well, during the Second World War itself, when he was titanically busy as affairs of state took all his waking and working hours, Churchill gave up his brushes and his canvases almost completely, but not entirely, and nor did he give up seeing the world uh, in pictures. Notice, for example, the powerful painterly visual image that he used to such telling effect in the peroration of his great speech ending, this was their finest hour in which he contrasted the abyss of a new dark age, the black dog, as it were, into which Europe would sink if Hitler triumphed, to the broad sunlit uplands, light is life, 
which might be gained if he could be defeated. Broad sunlit uplands were vistas which Churchill greatly loved to depict, and they had now become the metaphorical destination to which he hoped he might lead his country and its allies. And appropriately enough, the only one single canvas that Churchill completed while Prime Minister could be described in exactly those terms, a view of Marrakesh drenched in sunlight and rising towards the high peaks of the Atlas Mountains in the distance, which he painted in January 1943 after his earlier meeting with President Roosevelt at Casablanca. Churchill and FDR both subsequently visited Marrakesh, and once the president had departed, Churchill set to work with his paints. It was a brief break from the pressures of war, and Churchill later gave the painting to Roosevelt uh, as a memento of their visit. Uh, one of Roosevelt's children then sold it off, uh, and it came into the, pres into the ownership uh, of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolly. Um, those of us who care about this, in some ways the most iconic of all paintings, are very hopeful that when their marriage split up, they didn't split up the picture uh, as well. In any event, after Churchill had painted that, it was back to work and back to war once more. Just as Churchill had discovered the therapeutic value of painting at a dark time in his life during the First World War, so he turned to it again in the aftermath of his defeat in the general election of 1945. Even before the votes had been counted, he'd gone off to the south of France for a brief holiday, where he'd taken out his paints for the first time since Marrakesh. And in September 1945, after, of course, the general election result had been declared, Churchill was now out of office, he headed to Italy, to the shores of Lake Como, where Field Marshal Alexander, the supreme Allied commander in the Mediterranean, a Churchill favourite and also, of course, a fellow painter, offered him his villa. As after the Dardanelles, the, ther the therapy soon worked, and in a month, Churchill produced 15 pictures. I paint all day and every day, he wrote to his daughter Mary, and have banished care and disillusionment to the shades. Alex came and painted a two. I am confident, he told Clementine, that with a few more months of regular practice, I shall be able to paint far better than I have ever painted before. This new interest is very necessary to my life. And during the period of the late 1940s, when he was writing his war memoirs, when he was leading the conservative opposition and making triumphant visits to the United States and many of the capital cities of Europe, painting once again proved to be a great distraction from uh, the burdens of public life. If it wasn't for painting, he told Sir John Rothenstein at this point, I could not bear uh, the strain. As before, much of this painting was done at Chartwell, and France and Morocco were also special favourites. Painting picnics on these holidays were often organised on a lavish and elaborate scale, and Churchill produced some of his most uh, successful works during this period of those warm, sun-drenched locations uh, in the Mediterranean and in North Africa, uh, which he had come to know and love so well, and which also, of course, provided him uh, with an escape uh, from the cold rigours of austerity Britain in the late 1940s. By this time, in the aftermath of the Second World War, Churchill's painting was no longer just a private hobby. It was also part of his now vastly enhanced public reputation as the man of the half-century, the accolade which Time magazine bestowed on him in 1950. Three years earlier, Churchill had submitted two pictures uh, to be hung at the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition, not under his own name, but under the name David Winter. Uh, both were accepted and exhibited, and that is one of them. In 1948, following a unanimous resolution of the Council and the General Assembly, Churchill was elected an honorary academician extraordinary, the only one, I think, uh, ever so honoured. Um, and at, at the same time, in the same year, his earlier writings on art were republished as Painting as a Pastime, which became a bestseller and was translated uh, into many languages. In 1949, the annual Royal Academy Summer Dinner was revived after a lapse of 10 years, in part thanks to Churchill's prompting. However, at the end of it, the president, Sir Alfred Munnings, a well-known uh, painterly reactionary, made a speech which it would be polite to call uninhibited and more accurate to call completely intoxicated. Uh, the problem was it was transmitted live on the BBC. 
and in it he denounced the Academy itself, the Arts Council, and the Tate Gallery as vehicles of reprehensible modernism, and inveighed against those whom he described as foolish daubers, uh, namely Cezanne, uh, Matisse, and Picasso. And he later claimed those were Churchill's views as well. Uh, I don't think that's entirely fair, since Churchill certainly admired Matisse, and as I've already said, he valued uh, artistic expression and the freedom that went with it. In any event, so great was the outrage caused by Munning's speech in the art world and among the academicians that he was soon obliged to resign as president. By contrast, Churchill's own relations with the Academy went from strength to strength, and he exhibited every year at the summer exhibition between 1948 and 1951, the only former prime minister ever to do so. During his last period at 10 Downing Street, from early 1951 to the spring of 1955, the press of events and his own advancing years meant Churchill once again had little time for painting. But he certainly covered a few canvases, for example, on his occasional sojourns at Lord Beaverbrook's villa La Caponcina. And also he went on a brief trip to Jamaica after visiting uh, an American president where he lectured Noel Coward firmly but kindly about painting in oils instead of dabbling away at watercolours. When Churchill formed his last administration, three of his cabinet colleagues were, in fact, accomplished amateur artists, in particular uh, R.A. Butler and also Lord Alexander, who I've already mentioned. And Churchill painted with both of them, had done so, and would paint with them again. And Dwight D. Eisenhower was also himself uh, an accomplished artist. One of the tributes in a book published to Mark Churchill's 80th birthday came from the director of the Tate, Sir John Rothenstein. By the skillful choice of subjects within his range, he is able to paint pictures of real merit which bear an intimate and quite direct relation to his outlook on life. Every year, Churchill continued to exhibit at the Royal Academy and he was a regular attender and speaker at its summer banquets where he continued to urge the need to hold a middle course between tradition and innovation. In 1953, he insisted that the arts are essential to any complete national life and that the nation owes it to itself to sustain and encourage them. The following year, brooding as he was by then on the terrible perils unleashed by the hydrogen bomb, he urged that the arts have a noble and vital part to play in helping mankind to deal with these gigantic powers which confront us with problems never known before. In the spring of 1955, Churchill retired as Prime Minister, and his political life was effectively over. Freed for the last time from the cares and burdens of high office, his final decade would be one of private leisure, as he had earlier foreseen uh, in one of the essays republished in painting as a pastime. And as he had stated there, his brushes and his canvases would play a large part in fulfilling it. This is what he wrote, or what he had written then. One by one, as people aged, the more vigorous sports and exacting games fall away. Exceptional exertions are purchased only by a more pronounced effort and more prolonged fatigue. Muscles may relax and feet and hands slow down. The nerve of youth and manhood may become less trusty. But painting is a friend who makes no undue demands, excites to no exhausting pursuits, keeps faithful pace even with feeble steps and holds her canvas as a screen between us and the envious eyes of time or the surly advance of decrepitude. Happy are the painters, for they shall not be lonely. Light and colour, peace and hope will keep company to the end or almost to the end of the day. During the late 1950s, Churchill spent a great deal of time on the French Riviera, relishing its warmth and sunshine and light and colour, and usually staying with Lord Beaverbrook at his villa or with Emery and Wendy Reeves. Uh, and there we have a picture of Churchill, very old, uh, in his mid-80s, uh, painting away uh, on the Riviera. And with such congenial company, he completed his four-volume history of the English-speaking peoples and painted many of his late works. And there was a final visit uh, to Marrakesh, in 1959. But Churchill's last decade was not only one of private leisure in which painting played an important part. It was also one of extraordinary public and indeed global apotheosis, and his pictures were significant there as well. Churchill may not have been a great painter, but his paintings became an integral part of his greatness. 
1958, an exhibition of 35 of his paintings was put on in Kansas City, and the introduction was writ to the catalogue was written by his former colleague and fellow artist, President Eisenhower. So popular and so successful was this exhibition that it travelled elsewhere in the United States, including the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and it also went on uh, to Toronto and Montreal in Canada, to eight cities in Australia, and to four cities in New Zealand. And although Churchill had previously resisted any attempt to put on a one-man show in London, the success of this North American display emboldened the Royal Academy to ask again. And the resulting exhibition, augmented by 26 additional canvases, finally opened in London here in March 1959. It was a huge success, and its run was extended from the end of May to the end of July by which time over 140,000 people had visited it, a greater number than for any other exhibition held in those same spaces here in the Academy, except for one devoted to Churchill's fellow artist, Leonardo da Vinci. We think the president of the Academy wrote to Churchill on its closure. It has deservedly marked in the most effective and significant way your historic membership of the Royal Academy, thus crowning your extraordinary title in our annals. By then, Churchill was visibly aging, as the surly advance of decrepitude was becoming irresistible, and as the end of his day draw, drew inexorably closer. He painted his last canvases in the autumn of 1960, or perhaps just a little after that. Some of them were wistful and sad, the vigour, the sunshine that had imbued his earlier work was no longer there. And as he entered this final phase of his life, very sad and very depressed, the black dog was back and painting, even painting, no longer worked uh, to keep it at bay. Yet he continued to exhibit earlier works at the Royal Academy until his last summer of 1964, by which time he had contributed more than 50 paintings to the annual exhibitions without any break since 1947. His attendance at the summer dinner remained a fixture in his annual schedule until 1963, and he was invariably accompanied by his bodyguard, Sergeant Murray, that's Sergeant Murray standing up there, himself a talented amateur painter. In 1959, and in the midst of his triumphant one-man show, Churchill was acclaimed by Harold Macmillan as the greatest living amateur painter an observation that was greeted with rapturous applause at the summer dinner. Two years later, Harold Nicholson, an old friend and great admirer, confided this sadly affectionate entry to his diary, an account of the Royal Academy summer dinner that year. I watched Winston leaving. The president took one arm and an attendant another, and they almost carried the old boy down the steps. He is frightfully old. His eyes are bleary and immobile. I watched his huge bald head descending the staircase and I blessed it as it disappeared. A voice behind me said, we may never see that again. I turn round, it is Clement Attlee. As someone whose father had died young, as someone who for much of his own life did not expect to live out his full allotted biblical span, and as someone who had often witnessed at first hand the carnage, the ruin, the waste, the devastation, and above all, the killing of war, Churchill had often brooded on the transience and ephemerality of life and on the meanings and mysteries of death. And never more eloquently than with these words with which he began to draw to a close his majestic biography of the first Duke of Marlborough. The span of mortals, Churchill wrote there, the span of mortals is short, their end universal. It is foolish to waste time lamenting the closing phases of life. Noble souls yield themselves to the gently falling shades which carry them to a better world or to oblivion. But which for Churchill was it to be? And which did Churchill himself think it would be? 
In truth, he never could quite make up his mind about whether there was a future life after death. Having long been a religious skeptic, he often thought that death would indeed be the end, a sort of perpetual nothingness, to which he gave the name Black Velvet. As someone who would never like dark colours, especially the sombre, sepulchral finality of black, and who had spent all his life battling the black dog of debilitating depression, Churchill can hardly have been infused by such a dark and dim and dismal prospect. But in painting as a pastime, he set out an alternative version of the next world, which was much more buoyant and much more optimistic. When I get to heaven, he wrote there, I mean to spend a considerable portion of my first million years in painting, and so really to get to the bottom of the subject, assisted and enabled as he thought he would be by a still gayer palette than I get here below, and by a whole range of wonderful new colours which will delight the celestial eye. And as Churchill lay on his deathbed in January 1965, immobile and seemingly insensible, his daughter Sarah claimed that his right hand was often seen to move, as if already grasping for the heavenly paintbrush that might yet await him. If there is any justice in this world, and if there is any hope of the next, then surely somehow and somewhere Winston Churchill may even now be painting vividly and vigorously away. And after his long and extraordinary life of epic endeavours and heroic achievements, only the meanest of spirits and coldest of hearts would begrudge him a well-earned repose in such a brilliantly illuminated eternity, full as in his presence it must surely be of light and colour, peace and hope. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.